Thanks for joining us. To keep up with the latest news and podcasts, visit www.propelchurchaz.com. This morning, you know, God, God is in this place. His presence is here. And it's so important that we continue meeting with one another um, so that we don't fall into traps. Um, because when we encourage each other and hold one another up, um, we protect ourselves from the enemy because when we're isolated, he can be at all sorts of foul play inside of us. And so it's, right. it's good to be here with you guys meeting together. And I hope that God's able to do a work in your heart today and in mine as we explore the next name of God in our series, Our God Is. That's right. So in this series, we've talked about several of God's names and what they reveal about him and his desires toward us. And um, God, God is amazing. God, there's so many aspects to God, and he takes care of us, and he, he is everything to us. And today we continue with uh, what I think is the hardest one to pronounce, thanks, Jathan, is Jehovah <laughs> Tzidkenu. Just kidding. <laughs> Jehovah Tzidkenu. Can you say that? No. Yeah, no, you can't say it. Okay. <laughs> Work on your pronunciation. So this name of God is mentioned only twice by him, and that's through the prophet Jeremiah. Um, and that was during a time um, when Israel was kind of anything uh, but righteous. And so it's mentioned in Jeremiah 23 and again in chapter 33, which is just a restatement of what was in chapter 23. So if you guys would turn in your Bibles with me, if you've got them, to chapter 23, we're kind of just going to sit there for most, of the, um, for most of the message today. But first, let's get some background about what's going on surrounding God's mention of this name of his. So Jeremiah's prophecy spans the last five kings of Judah, of Israel. Um, Jeremiah uh, was the son of the high priest Hilkiah, who served under King Josiah. Now Josiah was a unique king, and he's described in scripture as being a king who was wholly devoted to his God, his heart and his soul. In fact, it says that there wasn't anyone like him since in the days of the kings and the judges. That, that feared the Lord and did what he wanted him to do. And so during his time, he enacted a purging of Israel, which you can read about in the books of 2 Kings and chapter 22 and 2 Chronicles 34. They're parallel to one another. Um, and you read that Israel had fallen. You read through the things, and you read through the things that Josiah had to do to put things back in accordance with God's word, and it's astonishing the, the length that Josiah, Josiah had to go to put things back into order. Josiah's grandfather Manasseh and father Ammon totally defiled the holy things of the Lord and led the nation of Israel, apparently willingly, into wickedness and idolatry. And they were serving other gods in the nations around them. And the things that Manasseh had done specifically are mentioned by God in explaining why he would not relent from destroying Israel. The priests and the leaders were facilitating this wicked behavior and the worship of these gods. The shepherds, the shepherds were not shepherding at that time, as Jason alluded to earlier. And even the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of Yahweh, had trinkets, had items devoted to other gods in it. And people were worshiping other gods in Jerusalem in the temple. And so they had fallen very far. But as much as Josiah did to put things back into order as the leader of the nation, um, Israel had kind of passed its tipping point, so to speak. And though God did not bring about judgment during the time of Josiah, uh, he did not relent as the next kings came. Because when the next kings came, none of them ruled, ruled for very long and none of them did what was right, That's right in the sight of God. And so it was during this time that the last of these kings that Jeremiah prophesied, 
that God mentions this name of his. And so let's look at it together in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is not a difficult concept. We, we human beings tend to, tend to group things as wrong or right. Um, you know, there are always some gray areas, but it's a natural thing for us to kind of divide the world and the things that happen into those two groups. It's, this wasn't right or this was right. Um, I looked up righteousness in the Hebrew, and what it means is upright, straight, or just, innocent, pure, correct in action, acting according to a proper or right standard, right standing with God. I like how, again, one of my favorite theologians defines it, George MacDonald. He says that righteousness is just fairness. It's fairness from God to man and from man to God and other people. It's giving everyone what is due to them. They're large and mighty due. And so we find in the world that all belief systems have a notion of righteousness. And all belief systems value whatever they deem to be righteous as good. They value that. So if you look at the religions of the world today, we have Islam. Islam has the Quran as their scriptures. Um, and they, they have their five pillars that you're supposed to follow. You've got to pray the right way. And um, Sharia law is, more, is a more stricter interpretation of the law. Stricter. Is that a word? Um, if you go further to the east, you have religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. And they have the Hindu scriptures. Um, and they define what they call dharma to be um, righteousness, to be how you should live your life. Or if we come further or come closer to home, we have atheism and humanism. Now, they don't have a whole lot in writing, but there is actually a humanist manifesto out there, a white paper, on what they say that they believe, and it's interesting. You, could, you should read it sometime. But basically, with atheism and humanism, man decides what's right and wrong. People, you, you or your buddies with you, get to decide what right and wrong is. Now, you can still be good as an atheist or a humanist. You just don't have any moral authority with any reason to be good. So... Also, obviously we're here today, um, we have the Judeo-Christian worldview. Um, and we have the Bible. We have the Law of Moses. We have uh, Christ and his sermons. We have um, the epistles and the teachings of the apostles. So righteousness, again, is seen as something that's valuable. Something to strive for in all the belief systems of the world. But what's important to note is that the standards of righteousness are not all the same. They're similar in some cases, but they're not all the same. And it's very important on who we have allowed to define righteousness. That's the key point. As similar as the belief systems may be and what is right and what is wrong, who we have allowed to define righteousness makes all the difference. In Islam, you have Allah, the moon god, that Muhammad had supposedly had the vision of. In Hinduism and more Eastern religions, you have Brahman. They call, they call God Brahman, who is the universe. It's called pantheism. It means everything is God. That chair is God. You are God. Everything is God in here. That's what it's called. Atheism, again, you and your buds get to define what's right and wrong. And then who defines it for, Jude- for Jews and Christians? Elohim. Yahweh. El Shaddai. Jehovah Jireh. 
All these codes can't be right since they disagree with each other. That's logically speaking. As followers of Christ and of the living God, we know that God is the ultimate moral lawgiver and of the authority of what is and isn't righteous. That any other definition of righteousness that comes from somewhere else isn't from Him. It's not actually righteous. It comes from man, and it's aided sometimes by spirits, demons, Satan. Helps us along in making a righteousness apart from God. So, what does righteousness made in the absence of God look like? Well, we have a lot of examples, a plethora of examples we have. And I just want to go over a few of them. So all the way back to the beginning, Adam. Adam, he was fine up until the point where he deemed it more righteous to take the fruit and eat it and do what God said not to. And you think about the fallout from that. It was pretty serious. Death, disease, bloodshed, suffering, thorns, animals eating animals, killing, cancer. Fallout was bad. Cain, his son, he deemed it more righteous to take his brother's life and kill him and remove his competition than give give to God what was due him. What about people in Noah's day before the flood came? They deemed it righteous. The Bible says to do whatever was right in their own eyes. They didn't have a code. They just did whatever they wanted to do. It sounds familiar. They they were violent and they hated. They, They just did whatever they wanted. So fast forward a little bit further, you have Greek philosophers, people like them. They define, kind of define righteousness as knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge. If you know everything, you're there. Right. What about the Romans? They thought that power, glory, that's righteousness, and their gods aided them in that. Or you go to Muhammad, and at least at one point deemed it righteous to rid the world of any unbelievers, or at least make them pay high taxes to maintain their unbelief. Or what about Karl Marx? Vladimir Lenin. These guys deemed it righteous. Uh, these guys deemed a communist slash socialist political system to be righteous. So we have a lot of examples. Now we go on. <laughs> Adolf Hitler. He deemed evolutionism, the survival of the fittest, killing the weak, was righteous. You know, Hitler wasn't really a madman. He, was, he wasn't crazy. He was just logical. He was taking Darwinism to its logical conclusion and the belief that some people are higher than others, which is absolutely wrong. But he believed it. And that drove the, the Nazi engine. I haven't read it, but I hear his book, Mein Kampf, is very revealing about what ideologies drove his machine. Or what about Hollywood? Hollywood deems that doing whatever feels good to you is righteous. You think about it. Think about the movies you watch, the TV shows. Now, you, you can do that as long as you generally don't interfere with other people. You don't want to do that. But as long as what, is doing, what you're doing feeling good is not affecting other people, then, then it's okay. Or what about school shooters? Ironically, the secular myths about creation that drove the Nazi ideology are still taught in our public school systems today. And there are still children who are taking the lessons that Hitler learned and purging the world in their eyes of the weak. You know, these guys are kind of on the fringe. We hear about them, but they don't necessarily reflect most people around us. So what about most people when they try to come up with their own ideas of righteousness? They say, well, as long as I'm a good person, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, at the end of my life, at the end of the day, it'll be okay. You know, that's righteousness. I just want to be a good person. Um, 
You know, that it seems almost natural for us to kind of believe that when we're on our own, but what we don't, what, what that doesn't acknowledge is that the scales of righteousness and wickedness are not on the same scale. That's right. That's right. They're, they're different scales. You can't balance a bad deed with a good deed. It doesn't work like that in reality. You can't steal a car from someone and then pay restitution by helping, helping an old lady across the street a hundred times. No, you have to give the car back or pay for the car you destroyed and then go to jail for a while. You have to pay. That's justice. So you can't balance bad deeds with good deeds. So without a moral authority over, all pe- over people, you have a free-for-all in defining what's righteousness. And so if you think about this... If you think about space, you think about the things that are hovering over the earth, all the satellites, you know, what happens when they run into each other? They kind of blow up in pieces everywhere, and pieces are flying all which ways, going all different directions, and they, you, know, you end up with some, some collisions, you end up with some hard ones, you end up with some soft ones, but you end up in this very chaotic environment, which is kind of the world we live in today. Amen. It looks a lot like, like where we're at. And it, it can be tough to navigate if you don't have a manual. So when it comes to people and keeping with this picture of things flying everywhere, you're going to have some people flying in their direction and they want to force everybody to go with them. You think about terrorists and, and cult leader, leaders and they cause major collisions. Or you think about people who don't want any collisions. So they deem it righteous to try to avoid them at all costs and just kind of go with the flow. So you end up with chaos. And it becomes obvious that man simply can't define righteousness. Because what you end up with is either one person or a group of people who define it. So what do the scriptures have to say about righteousness made by men and their gods with a little g? Let's go to Psalm 14. This is David talking. He said, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one good. There is no one who does good. Not even one. What about Psalm 143? David says again, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give, give ear to my pleas for mercy. David is, is asking the Lord for mercy. And he says, in your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant. Why? Because no one, is li- no one living is righteous before you. Right. He appeals to God for mercy by plainly stating what is true. No one is righteous before you. What about Solomon? Solomon, when he was an older man, was wise. And he made this observation in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. He said, surely there's not a righteous man on the earth who does what is good and never sins. And then one of the most shocking illustrations, illustrations we have in the scriptures um, to, to show that this point is in Isaiah, when Isaiah is prophesying in chapter 64 and verse 6. Isaiah says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Amen. I, I went back and forth on whether or not to, to tell you what I found about the word polluted. Sometimes it's... it's it's translated filthy or other words in the language, but um, I looked it up um, in the Hebrew, and it's actually not a word-for-word literal translation in any, in any of the English Bibles, um, because the word, the word actually means menstruation. So proudly presenting our self-made righteousness to God is like proudly presenting a filled bathroom trash container to him. 
Why, why such crass imagery? I mean, that's, that's gross. Why, why did God go to that length to explain to us what our righteousness and of ourselves is to him? Maybe so that there wouldn't be any doubt or ambiguity of the worth of any moral code that we come up with outside of him. That's right. That's good. Only the creator of the universe who knows all things and can see every situation inside and out, both above and below time, sees all the angles, can define what is righteous. That's right. That's right. That's good. And righteousness with no connection with God is impossible. That's right. Amen. My wife and I sometimes watch a TV show named Monk. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's about, it's about a hypochondriac detective um, who solves murder cases. He's actually pretty good at it, but he's, it's funny because he's afraid of everything. And he has this assistant named Julie. And so we were watching one of these episodes, and at the beginning of the episode, uh, there's this guy who's stealing a bike. And so he's got his bolt cutters, he cuts off the bike lock, um, he throws the bike lock in the basket of the bike, and throws his bolt cutters in there and starts tearing off. And so um, as he's going fast, he doesn't see this pothole in the road, and hits it and totally biffs head over heels. Smash, or you think, ah, justice. But he does this near, near Monk and Julie, his assistant, who, out of compassion, runs to him and tries to help him and says, are you okay? He stands him up, dusts him off. Do you need me to call help for you? He's like, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. She helps him pick up his busted bike lock and his bolt cutters, puts him right in the basket, and, you know, thinking that she did something righteous. And sure enough, you know, a little bit later, this guy comes out of, of a building saying, the guy stole my bike, get him back, get him back. They can't catch him, but... so. What she thought was the right thing to do turned out not to be the right thing to do because she didn't know everything about the situation. I'm not saying you shouldn't help somebody when they crash on their bikes. Maybe, maybe you could be a little more observant about what you're picking up. But what I'm saying is that you just, we can't see all the angles and we don't know. That's right, that's good. So that's why we can't define what's right and wrong. So since God is the only one who can rightfully define it, what is God's standard of righteousness? Well, God revealed that to us in his word. He gave a law to Moses and he clarified it. And it's by reading and hearing God's word that a person is made aware of what his standard is, of what is righteous. The flawless and holy character of God is plainly seen in the Old Testament law, the first covenant he made. And he pointed the nation that bore his name to this standard of living. And so for clarity, there are different aspects of the Old Testament law. Um, It kind of can be broken up into three different areas. Um, The first area being ceremonial laws, things like sacrifices, things like purity, cleansing, um, what kinds of food to eat, things of that nature. Um, These types of laws, because of the blood of Christ and his final atoning sacrifice, we don't necessarily have to adhere to today, although there's probably some value in some of the cleanliness there. But these are abolished by Christ's atonement and clarifications. Second type are civil type laws, how people should behave in society, and, um, and more importantly, how, what just punishments for sin are. So um, this is kind of an, an area of the law that Christians struggle with in their theology. Um, but you know, these, these are still valuable to us to see the equity and the justice of God. Now, what we can't obviously do is enact the punishments for these sins, as is outlined in the law, because we don't live, there's no nation in the world that is directly governed by God publicly, directly and publicly governed by God like Israel was. So although we don't enact the punishment, we need to recognize these civil laws for their justice. And 
then finally we have the moral laws, and these remain in full effect. And they were even clarified and expanded by Jesus when he was here. And so we know that these laws are the right ones, but is knowing them sufficient to make us righteous? That's, That's kind of something that Paul had to deal with in the Roman church when he wrote his letter to them. And he says in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, that now we, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Sure. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what does that mean? That means the law is not given to cleanse us from, righteousness, from unrighteousness. It can't, it can't do that. But to make us conscious of it, to make us aware of what right and wrong is. And, you know, the scriptures, the scriptures certainly do this well. They, they do it well. And to illustrate, let's just take the Ten Commandments for an example, found in Exodus 20. And I, w- I want to go through these, these commandments one by one, so be patient with me. And I want us to see if these laws don't read into us better than we read into them. First commandment is, you shall have no other God beside me. Now don't raise your hands, but just answer to yourself. Have you ever had a God beside him? Something else that you worshipped? Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. An idol is anything that's important to us or somehow takes God's place in our hearts somehow. It can be anything. It can be work. It can be money. It can be cars. It can be tech. It can be musical instruments. It can be entertainment, which is a big one today. It can be relationships, real ones or digital. Uh, It can be anything. Has anybody made an idol before the Lord? Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Has anybody ever misused his name in a quick moment? Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. God in creation gave us a model. He created and worked for six days and he rested on the seventh. And he commanded us to do the same thing. And I don't know what it is about it, but when you, when you don't honor the Sabbath, things just don't go right. You don't get what you need. And God gave this commandment for us. Have you ever broken a Sabbath? Fifth one is honor your father and your mother. Have you ever dishonored your father or mother? Sixth one, you shall not murder. I I don't think anybody in here has actually committed the physical act of murder. But Jesus clarified this commandment in the New Testament. He said that even if you're mad enough to swear at somebody, or if you're mad enough to hurt them, then you're in violation of that commandment. That's right. That's good. Anybody in here ever been mad enough to swear at somebody or hurt them? The seventh one is you shall not commit adultery. Jesus also clarified this commandment and revealed that even if you look at someone with lust in your heart or fantasize about them, then you've broken this commandment. That's right. That's right. Has anybody in here ever committed adultery? Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Have you stole? Commandment nine, shall, you shall not bear false witness. Have you lied? to protect yourself, you lied to hurt another. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Have you ever wanted something your neighbor had and had to have it? I'm just going to assume that if I did have you raise your hands, probably nobody would, but if I did have you raise your hands and all of our hands would be up most of that time, mine would be. And did we ever break any of these while knowing them? So knowing, is what, knowing what's right can't make us righteous. Amen. It can't make us righteous. It's not enough. We have to live it out. That's 
We have to live it out. And and regardless of the fact that we all fall fall short, we still have examples in scriptures of men who acted righteously per God's standard, and they were commended for it. And I want to list a few of them here, just so we can draw out something important. So Cain's brother, Abel. Abel presented to God the sacrifices that were due him and was declared righteous. Noah was denoted as a righteous man who had a relationship with God and gave him his due by obeying him. Abraham obeyed and trusted God, even when what he commanded him to do was in stark contrast with Abraham's own desires. Abraham didn't want to take Isaac up on that mountain, like we talked about in previous um, messages in this series. He didn't want to take him, but he did, and he was declared righteous for it. David loved God and and his word, and, and he lived a lifestyle of obedience. And so these are just a few examples, and none of these men obviously were without mistake, but they illustrate something. They're declared righteous because they gave God what was due him. They gave others what was due them. They, they obeyed God. They knew God. They walked down the path of righteousness as it was defined by God. So up to this point in our discussion about righteousness, all that I've aimed to do is exactly what the Old Testament law and prophets are to do in us. And that is to make us conscious of sin. To make us aware that we don't measure up. That being righteous in the sight of God is only possible for us if our will is 100% committed to God every moment of our lives. For us people, that's an infeasible standard for every man, woman, and child. But there's hope. Remember? Remember what God said? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Tzidkenu. And this is the name of Christ. Because those days that he was talking about they happened. That's right. When Jesus Christ offered himself to us, lifted up on a Roman cross, was executed and his blood spilled out for us, that promise was fulfilled. That's right. For those who would receive him, he would cleanse of all unrighteousness. That's right. All of the wickedness and the iniquity and the unrighteousness of every single one who falls at his feet, he takes upon himself Listen, never to be seen by God again. That's right. Followers of Jesus, if that does not pull on every single one of your soul and heartstrings, there's something the matter. Because that's why we have life. That's why we have hope. And what an amazing gift that it is. Yeah, give God praise. Give God praise. We talked about what Paul had to say to the Romans about righteousness. Um, So I want to continue his thought in Romans 3, starting at verse 21. He says, But now a righteousness of God has been manifested, made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And that's this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And Christ did what we could not do. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He was 100% submitted to the will of the Father every moment of his life on earth. 
And when we choose to confess with our mouth that he is our Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we are given that righteousness. We are given Christ's righteousness, which save us, saves us from the just punishment of sin, which is eternal death. You know, the burden, the burden of man-made righteousness, and it is, it is a burden, is done away with. And I found something that Jesus said in one of his sermons so refreshing as it relates to this. In Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who, you who labor and are heavy laden. Righteousness is heavy. It's a burden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, God, Jesus is doing the heavy lifting. We don't have to define it for ourselves. We don't, have to, we don't have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Jesus is right there with us. We have his righteousness. And you know, God didn't stop there. He cleansed us of our past sins, but God didn't stop there. He gave more. Jesus was speaking to his disciples the night before he was killed. And he was talking to them about leaving, and he says this. In John 16, chapter 7, he, or chapter 16, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You know, it's interesting how one of the reasons the Holy Spirit was given to us is because of righteousness. With Jesus leaving the earth, what example could we have? What connection with God could we possibly have to keep us in that 100% relationship with him? God solves this problem. He gave us the Holy Spirit. I mean, how could we do the will of God unless we have a direct connection with him at every moment? So God provides, again, by offering to us himself. If you think about that, he offers to us his very self, his eternal, uncreated, all-powerful, all-knowing nature and character he gives to us and places within us himself so that we are able to be righteous in his sight. So in the Holy Spirit, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. And this fulfills God's promise of being our righteousness. God kept his promise, as he always does. 600 years before the coming of Christ, he told everybody, look, I'm going to be your righteousness. And he came through. Because that's what he does. So you guys, I conclude today just by challenging you to pursue this righteousness. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy near the time of his death and encouraged um, him. So I just want to encourage you in the same way in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. So flee youthful passions. Young people, flee youthful passions. Anything this world has to offer you, anybody this world has to offer you, flee. It's not worth anything. And do what? And pursue righteousness. Faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Seek the filling of the Holy Spirit daily in your walk with him.
You can't do it without him. That's right. That's good. God intends for us as human individuals to become an unstained and unique image of himself that's completely 100% pure. Don't, don't think that God doesn't intend to make out of you what he made in Christ. That's right. Because that's what he intends for all of us. Just to, to be just as he is, and our will and his will become perfectly united. And that's where God's taking us, and we don't need to wait another day in pursuit of this. So we have been given the gift of righteousness. And all I have left to say is, let's use it. Amen. That's right. Do you guys bow your heads?